Okay, Matthew chapter 25, and uh, let's read together the final portion of this chapter and uh, study it together, beginning in verse number 31. And we close out this, uh, what is known as the Olivet Discourse, the fifth and final teaching segment that Matthew records in the life and ministry of Jesus. And uh, we are quickly approaching Calvary and the cross, and uh, we'll be there early this year and uh, excited to have the gospel and the events of the gospel, the good news events come to bear on us. Uh, I know it's been already in my heart a valuable thing to read and study, and so I'm anticipating that. But before we get there, let's finish out and study Jesus' words and instructions to the disciples on the Mount of Olives as uh, they look over the temple and Jesus communicates with them about the end times, about the final days. And that's where we pick up in verse number 31. Jesus has just given two parables to highlight the need for active watching. That's what we studied last Lord's Day. And now he turns from the parables to describe, in a brief account, the final judgment. Let's read in verse number 31 together. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we study his word this morning. Father, thank you for this text. And I thank you for the opportunity and the privilege that we have this morning to open it together and to examine it. We do not want this to be an exercise of inflated information or minds filled up, resulting in pride and religious arrogance. But rather, we desire for this, this portion of your word to come to bear on us, to affect us so that we might understand its contents, but then be changed by it. So I ask that your spirit would help both in the delivery and the reception, that there would be a submissiveness to you 
that we would be hearers first and then turn to doers of your word, that we would believe your word and then live your word. So convict us this morning with these truths. Drive home these end events so that they shape our thoughts and our priorities and our attitudes and our perspective this week, this year, as many days as you've numbered for us. We ask for your help because you alone can help us. This is your spirit's word. It's alive and powerful, but you must apply it. You must bring it down upon us. And so we ask that it would divide where nothing can divide, that it would go where nothing else goes, that it would separate and move and work in us because we want to be people who make you famous. We want to be people who spread your value, your worth to our communities We want to be people that reflect your character, that are evidently not of this world, who are clearly citizens of another realm. So help us this morning to be shaped and molded. And we will turn back praise as we conclude our study and begin obeying this text. We will turn back praise to you and we will come in dependence again, asking for grace and strength and wisdom to apply these words to our lives. So we ask for blessings and help now in the name of our Savior who's at your right hand and in the power of your Spirit who's with us. Amen. Just by way of review, make sure that we know if you're fresh to this text with us or you weren't with us last Lord's Day, just draw you back to the beginning of chapter 25, set the table a little bit for you, and then we'll we'll dive into the study of our text for today. Two parables are presented to us. The parable of the ten virgins. Five of them prepare for waiting for the the bridegroom to come. Five don't. That's the five wise, the five foolish. And then we have three servants or three slaves that are presented in the second parable. Two of them are wise stewards of what has been entrusted to them by the master who's coming back to take account of what they've done with his possessions. And one of them is foolish. He recognizes that the master gets from things that he doesn't work to get, so he accomplishes much by the hand of others. And in fear of retribution, if he fails, or frustration in the taking, if he succeeds, that servant goes and buries that talent, that weight of monetary value. He buries it in the ground and presents it when the master comes. The two that are faithful, even with their differences in the amount of stewardship that they received, are rewarded equally, their portion is doubled, and they go into the eternal rest and joy of their master. The servant who was foolish, and the five virgins who did not prepare for the waiting, are all banished apart from the kingdom, set outside and punished severely. These pictures, these word pictures, are to help us. They're to clarify for us. It's like a A verbal flannel graph story. Jesus is sitting on the side of the hill with the 12 disciples. He's communicating heavy end times truths to them. And then he presents these pictures to say, all right, let me draw it out for you. Let me show you what it's like. He said, be ready, stay awake, be watchful. And here are two pictures to help. Jesus turns off of those two parables and he comes to this final portion. And he comes back to telling them what is coming in no uncertain terms. He uses word pictures, he uses an illustration, but he focuses their attention on the facts of what is 
is coming at the end in his return. Remember that the theme that is standing over, I believe, both of these chapters, 24 and 25 in the Olivet Discourse, is quite simply Christian theology or biblical theology of the end is critical to Christian living in the present. So, in other words, we are to be affected and shaped and our perspective is to be guided by the end now. The future is supposed to be coming down upon the present uh, this could be this could be sent as kind of the umbrella over these two chapters, though each paragraph unfolds and has its own themes and highlights. Now, this morning, for most, I don't know, most churches this is even accurate. Most churches that I've grown up in and been around, this would be a day where we have something about not looking back, but looking forward, or we would have some visionary This is the 2nd of January. This is the first Sunday of 2011. So let's get excited about what's coming or what God has for us and the grace that he has for us in this year. But as I prepared for this first day, uh, first Lord's Day of January 2011, I kept coming back to the, the nature of these texts as being the most important for us. So... When it comes to the new year and the change of a calendar, there's a definite marker in our culture that says that's a change. There's like change involved. Many of you maybe uh, do resolutions. You, you like write things out that are going to change. You're going to shed a couple pounds. You're going you're gonna to join the large crowds that are now at the gym for the next couple of weeks. Right? You're going to stop some bad habit that you have. Um, you're going to engage in some activity that you've been neglecting, whatever the case, the year change somehow has become this marker where we, we, have, we think this will affect my life. This will change everything. And nothing would help us as we look at the front end of a new year than to have, to have a vision of the future, to know what was coming this year. I mean, nothing would help our planning. If we were going to set up for the best 2011, nothing would help us like seeing the future Nothing would set us up for success like knowing what was going to happen before it happened. That's exactly what we have in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. We have the facts of what will happen before they happen. And that is to affect the way we live our lives, look at our lives, worship our Savior, obey our Savior, pursue our lives as His people. So, if you're facing the new year with some sense of, of uncomfortableness, a lack of confidence, maybe you're short on hope, courage, a dose of eschatology might be just what the doctor ordered for you this morning. And certainly this is given to us to inform us, to help us bring the biblical information into our daily lives. So, remember... Christian theology of the end or biblical theology of the end is vital to Christian living in the present. If you don't know about the end, it's not affecting your present. If you're not living in reality and thinking and meditating and allowing it to shape you, what you know from the Bible about the end, then you are not having the fruit of it in your present day life. So with that backdrop, let's jump into verse number 31 and study down through verse number 46 this morning. I think if we just divide this up very simply, this is a very practical division marker. I think there are two hope-inducing truths for us in verses 31 through 46. Two 
hope-inducing truths for us. Now, they're hope-inducing for us, and they should be fear-inducing for those that are not Christ. So perhaps you're here this morning, and you're not a part of Christ's family. You are not one of God's adopted sons or daughters. We'll talk more and more about that as we go through this study this morning. But these would not be hope-inducing truths. The same two truths that we'll see as hope for the believers should bring terror and crush pride for those that are apart from the grace of God. Okay? Very simply, here they are. Jesus will come to earth. Truth number one, Jesus will return to earth. He's coming. Pretty simple. And then truth number two, Jesus will return to judge. He'll return to earth, and He'll return to judge. He comes with a purpose. Jesus will come, and Jesus will judge. Two truths jump right off the page of your Bible, I believe, this morning. And we'll see that as we unpack these verses. First of all, then, Jesus will return to earth. Jesus will come. This is a hope-inducing truth for the new year, for the new week, for the new day, today. Jesus is coming. Verse number 31 sets kind of the stage for Jesus' final instructions. And Jesus says, when the Son of Man, that's his own designation for himself, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So here's the backdrop that he provides as he prepares to talk about that judgment that is impending for all of humanity. This verse starts with the word when, and that's important because it's not the word if. This is a guaranteed reality. This is going to take place. This is a hope-inducing truth because this is a sure and steadfast fact. When the Son of Man returns. Not if. No, no hope so like the cultural use of hope. This is a biblical hope-inducing truth. This is a sure Rock on which we can stand in this new year. Notice what Jesus says about his return. When he comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. There are some interpreters of the Bible who would say that the return of Jesus is merely a a mystical, spiritual return. And it is a throne on the hearts of his people. But this cannot be the case if we understand Matthew's record here of what Jesus is saying. Jesus will return physically, bodily, and he will come with his angels, the myriad of myriads with him, and he will sit on his throne. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 are very familiar to you. I'll read them to you and you'll be reminded of their their words. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The nation of Israel, the disciples who are listening to Jesus and you as a Bible student this morning need to understand that this return of Christ is a physical bodily return to a literal throne Situated in Jerusalem, upon which Jesus will reign. This is hope for us. No matter what takes place, uh, the Lord might have severe trials in store for you 
in 2011. Your economy might crash further. Our government might make decisions that make it more difficult for us to walk in truth. We may suffer at the hands of our loved ones and relatives who persecute us, who mock us, who disregard us. We might lose the one sitting next to you. Some of our room might deplete by death this year. Where will we turn for hope? What will be the grounding truth that is ours that we hold to? And this one is one of those grounding truths. Jesus will come again. He will come again and He will reign. No matter what is taking place around me, no matter what circumstances I find myself in, I have a sovereign Savior who is coming again and who will establish His rule and His government will have no end. He will set everything in order. All will be as it should be from now and forevermore. This is a hope-inducing truth. Now, as we begin to dive into the judgment record here, I believe the best understanding of this final paragraph is to see this again as, as a telescope in Jesus' prophetic ministry. Jesus is talking about His return, but He also places judgment that has final, eternal consequences connected to it. So there are final, eternal consequences directly connected in the verses to the coming of Christ. The second glorious return of Christ. So I believe Jesus has closed up the telescope. It's not popped open so that we can see all the events that will take place in the meantime between the coming and the judgment. But he pulls those together. And Matthew is not opposed to Paul or to John in his writing of the Revelation. Matthew sees only one judgment. He just sees one event. And he looks at it from different angles. Chapter 7, you remember, he says, In that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. So Matthew records Jesus, and he does so with a perspective of just one primary perspective on judgment. One, one, one angle on judgment. So we take all of Scripture, and we look at the different instruction we have about the coming end. And we see a much fuller picture. But for our study this morning, in this paragraph, we see a telescope closed. Jesus comes, final judgment takes place. There will be events in between. Jesus is concerned most with what is so critical for his disciples to understand. And that is that his coming will bring with it a final, decisive separation of humanity. So this this reality that Jesus will return to earth gets us away from where will I be at the end of 2011? And it gets us into where will I be in 555 years? I mean, that's not the thought that usually is on our dashboard. It's not on the front end of our thought. We don't, we don't think about that very much. And unfortunately, the fact that we don't think about that very much has a lot to do with the way we live. So Jesus brings the eternal consequences of the end to bear upon his disciples. And that is a hope-inducing truth. I will come again. And secondly... Jesus will return to judge. So Jesus will come and Jesus will judge. So truth number one, he's coming. Truth number two, when he comes, he'll be judging. Remember, a Christian theology of the end is vital to Christian living in the present. So verse number 32 picks up the narrative. 
Jesus describes in the third person, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, this judgment that Jesus describes, I think we could divide it up into three separate segments. We have the division as a whole. Then we have the judgment of the righteous or the sheep. And then we have the judgment of the goats or the unrighteous. So the division happens right here in verse number 32. Or verse number 33. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So all the nations. That's a key question. And really interpretively, this is one of the hardest passages in Matthew. Some commentators claim there are 35 different interpretations of what's going on as Jesus describes it here. I think we'll take at face value and I hope we'll come to a simple and clear understanding of these words. All the nations most naturally identifies all of humanity. So, This, I believe, describes everyone. This is a huge, massive, final, determinative judgment of people. Now, there are some who are careful with their Bible that I love and respect highly who would view this as as actually a a much smaller judgment that takes place before the thousand-year reign of Christ in Jerusalem. I'm, I'm constrained to see this as the end and all of humanity because of the consequences that are attached to this judgment. Seems that all the nations represent all people. And the separation is one that is final and it doesn't have any change in store. Everyone who is on the right is into their eternal glory. Everyone who is on the left is into their eternal damnation. So we see this division and Jesus illustrates it for us. Verse number 32, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, again, we're stuck with a cultural gap here. We, we, we don't, most of us don't have sheep. Maybe you do. I know my daughter's really into where that sheep guy will be. You know, there's a sheep person. I don't know what, it's a shepherd. I need to go meet the guy. But he travels around here. Do, do you know this guy? I mean, does anybody else see this? There's like sheep all of a sudden in some place and they're just there. And there's maybe a trailer nearby. And then, and then maybe a couple months later, they're gone. They were here right off of Mendocino exit for a long time. We would always see the sheep. We'd be reminded that the sheep say, bah. You know, I mean, this is like the way we live. We look for those sheep. But most of us have no familiarity with what it is to be a shepherd. In, in this time period, scholars from this historical period would say that shepherds often had grazing together or herded together goats and sheep. But those two were very different in their temperament. And so at least at night for bedding down, if not for grazing at times in different fields, the shepherds would go and separate out the goats from the sheep so the sheep could have an undisturbed rest from their much more hyper counterpart, the goat. And Jesus uses something that's totally familiar to the disciples, totally unfamiliar to me, to probably to you, But we can get the picture clearly from his description. This is a natural shepherding activity to separate out the sheep from the goats. They would be herded, but they would be put apart from each other for various reasons. Verse 33 defines then that it's going to be the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So Jesus sets up categories of people, sheep and goats. Please do not go tell your neighbor who you love and you have over to your home to share the gospel with. Listen, I I hate to break it to you, but you're a goat. Don't do it. It's not helpful. But it's helpful to Jesus, for his disciples, and for us to understand the picture of what will take place in the end. 
So with the division, Jesus then moves into describing what will take place as those divisions are made. Verse number 34 begins the judgment of the sheep. And really, these are mirrored as we read them. No doubt you saw that, that these are two mirrored judgments. But let me draw your attention to verse number 34. We won't be able to read all of this again, but let's at least see the words of verse 34 in closer detail. Jesus will say to those on his right, which are the sheep. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I want to draw your attention to this simply because the term son of man changes now to the king. And this is a natural transition. Jesus is on a throne. He's come in all of his glory with his angels in the future. And he is the king. He's the king of all other kings. He is the sovereign one. And therefore he reigns and judges with all sovereign authority from heaven. So now Jesus is identified as the king. And it is the king who says... To the sheep come. Now notice how Jesus describes the sheep in verse number 34. This is important for us theologically as we understand this paragraph. Come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now we might be prone to just blast through that verse and not notice What Jesus says here, but understand that the division has already been made and the classifications of the people in the division are set. And that's important for us. These two groups of people are divided because they are already established in who they are. And this first group, the sheep who are on the right, are identified as those who are blessed by the father and inherit the kingdom. They are adopted sons and daughters who receive an inheritance through the king, through Christ. And that inheritance has been prepared for them, uniquely for them, from before the foundation of the world, from the foundation, from the beginning. This inheritance has been set aside, prepared, and being prepared for them. John chapter 14 and verse 3, Jesus says, I'm going away. Very similar context to what we're studying now. The disciples are distressed and he says, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I am, I will bring you. So that we can be together. This is an inheritance that is uniquely set aside for these blessed ones who are sons and daughters. The eternal election of God's people is clearly represented here. Remember that 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this judgment of the sheep is a judgment of those who are set apart as the people of God. That's important to us because of what we find at the first word of verse number 35. And there is a massive amount of confusion possible if we don't rightly identify that the people being judged as sheep are already identified. In other words, what's going to happen in verse number 35 is not the reason that these people get their inheritance. 
It's the evidence for who they already are in receiving their inheritance. Jesus says, for, he explains what he has just said. What he doesn't explain is you're justified because you've done certain activities. Rather, he's already described them as blessed by the Father, inheritors of the kingdom, and eternally set apart for God. And the evidence for their status as sheep, the evidence for their placement on the right, is now found in verse number 35, down through verse number 37. Or verse number 36, rather. And that has everything to do with compassion for others. Mercy and compassion for others. Jesus describes it this way. I was hungry, you gave me food. Thirsty, you gave me drink. Stranger, you welcomed me. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. Prison, you came to me. The description given here is one of compassionate, active service and love toward another Human being. But Jesus identifies it as first person. All of the sheep that are, that are set apart on his right side, that are the, identified as the blessed of God, inheritors of the kingdom eternally, set apart for God. The evidence of their placement, or the reason behind their placement, the evidences that could be provided for that placement, have everything to do with the way they relate to others. And particularly, Jesus says... In his explanation, how they relate to his brothers. Now, the shock of the judgment is not where they're placed. It's the evidence that's provided to vindicate them. Notice verse number 37. The righteous are going to answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? And that would be all of us. Exactly when did we miss seeing you? And somehow in your presence, we helped you. We blessed you. We operated with compassion and mercy and grace toward you. We served. In verse 40, the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So second group is important to understand in this passage. First is all the nations. The second group is important to understand who are all the least ones, my brothers. Well, if you're involved in a socialist, a social gospel, a socialist gospel, a social gospel, there is no such thing. A social gospel, which is a liberal understanding of the Bible, which which relegates the Bible to a moralistic book that helps humanity along its way. Then you would see this as all of humanity. When you're nice to somebody, you're nice to Jesus. But that, that just doesn't hold up. And certainly, love for every individual and compassion for all who are in need is a part of the virtue of the believer. And certainly, there is grace extended for all people. But Jesus qualifies this in his explanation of verse number 40. The least of these, my brothers. Jesus here is talking about his disciples. This is the same concept that we found in chapter 10. Those who reject his disciples are rejected by him. The ones who are set apart as the sheep, who are already identified as the children of God, who are the inheritors of the kingdom, who are the blessed by the Father. These ones, the evidence for their, their placement as sheep is in their relationship to the body of Christ. That's what Jesus says. 
So it's not about being a good person. It's not as if Jesus weighs out their compassionate deeds versus the lack of compassionate deeds. And all the sheep are the ones that had more compassion. Which is bad news for many people who are placing their hope and confidence in being good people. Jesus says here, you relate to my body, the people of God, the church, you're relating to me. How you treat my disciples is directly related to me. There was a guy named Saul who found out about this in a really shocking way on the road to Damascus. Because he got blinded and he heard from heaven, why are you persecuting me? He went on to become identified as Paul and he's one of the sent ones from Christ. Jesus communicated to Saul of Tarshish that it was his persecution of the church that was representative of his persecution of Jesus himself. Jesus and his people are so inextricably connected that you treat one one way, you are treating the other in the same fashion. This has major implications for us, but this is the basis of the evidence for the placement of the sheep. They did not earn their way into the sheep category. This is proof, number one, that they are in the right place. The disciples of Jesus are so linked to Jesus himself that relationship to the needy within the body of Christ is proof positive of the sheep who now inherit eternal life with Jesus. You see that? That's a big difference between seeing works-based justification in this text and seeing justification by grace, through faith, Evidenced in works, which is James chapter 2. Genuine believers, those who are regenerate, who have saving faith, are those who live out the love of Christ for his people. So then it follows that verse number 41 is the second division of this judgment. We have the, the judgment of the sheep or the righteous, and now the judgment of the goats or the unrighteous. The king comes back to his discussion, verse number 41. Then the king, or he, will say to those on his left, Now notice their identification. Depart from me, you cursed. Into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And as Garth read to us from 1 John chapter 3, we are reminded that there are only two families in which to live as human beings. There are the children of the devil and there are the children of God. We are all born in the first category and by God's grace and His love. Through his son, we are brought into the category of adopted sons and daughters. So this identification is no shock to those that have been gathered on the left. No shock to those who have been identified in the category of the goats. They are the ones who are under the curse of God for their sin. They're cursed and now they will be sent away from Jesus, departed from the king, out of his kingdom, out from under his gracious and kind reign and into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. They will go to a literal eternal judgment. These identifications are sure. And they're at this point unchangeable. I think that's the most sobering part of these words from Jesus. When we get to this point, there is no change available. 
Jesus goes on to provide the evidence for why they're classified as the cursed and the inheritors of hell. Or I was hungry. You gave me no food. Thirsty, you gave me no drink. Stranger, you didn't welcome me. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. And they will be shocked by that evidence just like the sheep are shocked by that evidence. And they will say, when did that happen? When? When did we miss it? What did we, what did we, what did we miss? When were you in our presence and we didn't care for you? We didn't love you. We didn't extend compassion and actively serve you. And Jesus will answer in the same way. And with this sin of omission pressing upon them for eternal wrath from God. They will hear. And he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, verse 45, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You didn't love my people. You didn't love those who suffered amongst my people. You didn't love those who were persecuted in my. My group of disciples, my body, the church. And the proof negative for the goats will be their response to the people of God, their relationship to the people of God. This will be evidence of why they have been classified where they have been classified. The fruit of their unbelief and rejection of Christ is found in their relationship to the body of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, this is one of those root fruit issues that we have to hold tightly to. If what Jesus is talking about is actually the root, if the actions of compassion or the absence of those compassionate acts is the root, then what Jesus is saying is justification, that is being right with God, is all about the root issue of actions, of activities. And at that point, we would just work really hard to get into heaven. But your New Testament says the opposite. It says that your salvation and my salvation, our justification, our being made right with God is, is not by works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by grace and it's through faith in Jesus, believing what we cannot see about him, that he's the son of God, born in human flesh, obeyed his father perfectly, died and bore wrath for sinners and was raised on the third day. It's... It's through faith in, in Jesus that we receive justification. That our guilt is transferred to Christ at the cross and His obedience is transferred to our accounts and we are declared righteous, blessed by the Father, inheritors of the kingdom. So what we find is Jesus describing the fruit, not the root. The root is the heart. The root is the condition of your heart and my heart. And at the judgment, at this final judgment where there are no changes available, the heart will be put on display by the fruit that Jesus holds up at that judgment. And the fruit for the unrighteous ones will be their omission of love and care and active compassion for the body of Christ. And the fruit that's held up in vindication of the placement of the sheep will be their active involvement in the compassion and care and love, service for the body of Christ. Now, this is staggering. This is final. This is determinative. This is eternal in its consequence. Eternity is hanging in the balance at this judgment, and there's no turning back. Evidence is provided. The proof of the condition of the heart toward Jesus 
And the judgment will be unwavering. Verse 46 is so understated. These will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Now this is. This is a theology of the end. This is what's coming. This is what's coming before it happens. And this impacts the way we live. This has everything to do with 2011. This has everything to do with the ball dropping. One of my friends from afar said, remember when it was really cool to watch the ball drop? And he said, no, that never really happened. It was never cool. But all of that, all of those events, all of that revelry, drunkenness, all of the transition that's built into our culture of this new day, this new birth, this new year, all of that, all of that has to be influenced by this. This is truth. And it has to come to bear on you and me this morning. Now, how does it do that? What do we walk away from? How do we obey Matthew 25, 31 to 46? That's the question. Unbelievers who are with us this morning, we're, we're glad you're here in God's plans. And God has planned for you to be with us this morning and to have this passage be read and studied together. We didn't plan it. We didn't plan it for you. We didn't know you were going to be here, but this was planned by a gracious and kind God who extends to you an offer of salvation through his son. Turn from your own way. Turn today from your own way, your own efforts for righteousness, your own ability and wisdom to figure out your life, your own agenda. Turn from it. Turn away from it and turn to follow Christ. Look no longer at what you can see as truth, but look to Christ and his work at the cross. There you find a substitute who alone can substitute for you and make you right with God. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And we are permanently separated from God unless somebody stands in between us and bridges the gap. And only Jesus does that. The judge, the king, the one who is handing out these judgments now offers you salvation freely. If you will repent and believe. Cry out for mercy from God. Ask for eyes to see the truth and a heart to understand. Turn to Christ. The day of salvation will end. The opportunity for grace will close. You may not have another day. May these words come to bear on this day. For you who are not a part of of the family of God through Jesus Christ. For our family here who are a part of God's people, who have have become so not because we're wiser or smarter, but because we're foolish. And in the grace of God, He's opened our eyes to the truth. Not because we've got the brains to figure this out, but because the Spirit of God has awakened us to this and shown us from His Word what is true. This passage has to come to bear on us as well. We must fight for an eternal perspective. We're so temporal. And that's natural. Because we're temporal beings. We can't think eternal thoughts. We have a hard time thinking about things even in the future, in the short term. This text reminds us, as Jesus is instructing his disciples on the side of the mountain, that the end 
and the, the distance of eternity must come to bear on our present moment-to-moment life. You are righteous only through Jesus. You will receive judgment and reward from Jesus. And your eternity will be life with Jesus. So stay awake. Be ready. Watch. Be sober-minded. Be holy in your conduct. Live your life for this eternal truth. Now what does that look like? Well, just from today, and just from these judgments handed out by Jesus in this final judgment, I believe we must consider how we as individual believers and as a church family value Christ's coming biblically. What does it look like to have somebody who values Christ's coming? They treasure it. They long for it. Because I'm concerned that I'm not one of those people. And that this has at least opened my eyes to to the need for the value of the coming of Christ. So we must exercise the value system that we utilize for our lives. Value Christ coming biblically. Secondly, value Christ's body as His body. Have you considered that your relationship to the body of Christ is directly connected to your relationship and the closeness and the, the, the blessing and the rewards that will come and all the fellowship that is to be enjoyed with Christ Himself? Because the evidence that will be provided in this final judgment is just that. It's evidence of how you and I have related to one another. So, lone wolf Christians just kind of live out there on the island. They're just themselves. They're not connected. They're not accounted for. They're not accountable to one another. They're not actively loving, serving. They, they either feel like they've done their time and they're done with that or... They're too young to do that and they'll get to it later. Whatever the case, whatever the reasons, understand that we need to value Christ's body as His body. He does. And in the judgment, He'll say, He'll say, me. He'll say, I was thirsty. I was hungry. Jesus informs us that it is the least of these, the brothers, the disciples, Who are at stake. So. Eternal perspective. Looks like valuing Christ. Coming biblically. And I'm not sure how that looks in your life. I don't know what that means for your work. For your job. Men. Day in day out. Going to your job. What does it mean to value the coming of Christ at your job? It probably means the end of complaining. It probably means joy and service. It probably means submission to authorities. And it probably means a hope that is inexplicable. To everybody else around you. And an opportunity. To share Jesus Christ with others. I don't know what this looks like, moms. At home, day in and day out. But it probably doesn't look like drudgery on a daily basis. It doesn't look like escape from the responsibilities that God's entrusted to you. I don't know what it looks like to value the coming of Christ as an, a senior saint. As an elderly Christian. But, but it can't mean giving up. It certainly can't mean that there's... There's no more service to be had. There's no more giving of my life. So consider. Pray. Allow your grace group to speak into your life. Other believers talking to you about these truths. So that we can be faithful to be first hearers, then doers of Matthew 25, 31-46. Okay? I'm praying for grace for you 
I hope you're praying for grace for me. We need help from the Spirit of God to rightly apply the words of God so that we might bring glory to God. Father, thank you for this study. Thank you for this simple explanation from Jesus. He doesn't give us all of the details. He doesn't talk about all the different facets of what will be taking place during this time. He doesn't iron out every question and answer every dilemma that the disciples might have had, but he does present us with eternal truth before it happens. He gives us a glimpse of the future, a vision, and it is a hopeful vision for us who are in Christ. So drive home the coming of Christ so that it is our expectation. It's what we look to. It's what we long for. And it's what shapes the way we live life here and now. And Help us value your people as your son values his own body. The church, teach us to set aside our pride, our own wisdom, and to embrace the mission of Christ which is the love for one another that extends then to sharing that good news of of your son's work with those who are not a part of your kingdom. Father, change our church family as a whole. May this church be a place where we gather on the Lord's day to be encouraged, to be equipped, to be shaped, to be molded through the means that you've provided for us as we gather. And then may we scatter out from here to be effective in our day-to-day lives. May we not do our Christianity on Sundays. Get it off of our list. But may this simply be a pep rally for our lives this week. Realigned. Reestablished. May our grace groups be places where we're encouraged and built up. Our T2 groups where we are accountable to one another. And being encouraged in our roles as men and women. May our church life as a whole. Reflect our expectation of the coming of your Son and our Savior and His glory to sit on His throne and to establish His kingdom forever. And we will give you praise and thanks. And we do give you praise now and thanks for the ongoing step-by-step work. We long for the day when we see Him face-to-face because when we see Him, we will be like Him. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.